0: Job 31 is where we turn this morning. Job 31 is the last words of Job, our friend Job, that we've gotten to know here quite a bit in our last several weeks together, studying through the gospel according to Job, if you don't mind. And Job chapter 31, again, is his, his final words before his final, final declaration before God, in, uh, just very briefly in chapter 40 and the 42. But it's interesting how God is ordering our daily lives. It's always good to see how God is active, uh, orchestrating things to his own glory. Our two scripture readings we've mentioned to some degree, our second one especially. But our first one I was going to mention as part of our study, because what Samuel did in 2 Samuel 12 is proclaim his innocence before the people. He said, I'm guiltless of all these of any kind of charges i haven't defrauded anybody, you know for Samuel twelve he he says, "Here I am, and here you can bear witness against me before Yahweh and his anointed and he He lists very specific things. We say, "Well, why are you talking about oxen all of a sudden, or donkeys, and which kind of reminds us of of uh, what job had. He had oxen, he had donkeys because that's that's your wealth, that's your means of production, means of transport, means of all kind of thing. And he says, whose, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkeys have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? And from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I'll restore it to you. You're thinking, that's kind of a weird statement for Samuel to make. But he's proclaiming his innocence. And he's saying, if anybody has any reason to charge me with anything, let them speak now. Otherwise, let me tell you what's going to go down here. And you can read the rest of 1 Samuel 12 to, to find that out. Our second reading from John, John 9 the question is: Question came, this guy that was born blind, was it him or his parents that sinned? That he was born blind, and Jesus said, "No, no, neither sin." You think, wait a minute, aren't they? Weren't they born in sin and all that? Well, yes, but the, their his illness, his blindness, was not because of sin. It was so the glory of God could be manifest in him, and that's what we see with Job as well. He is suffering not because he's worthy of suffering, and and despair and that kind of thing. Remember the false assumptions of the friends that, well, Job is suffering, therefore he's a sinner. Suffering follows sin. And the solution, of course, well, blessing follows piety. Job, you just need to turn back to God and he'll bless your socks off. And we think that's, that's, that's really a simple way to, to view life, isn't it? Very, very... Uh, unsatisfactory way to explain what's going on and job refused to acknowledge it. he says what what are you talking about i'm not suffering because of sin i'm a blameless person and god is against me and god even has withheld justice from me and so he's arguing with god and we see that and, and we get into chapter 31 here job is is pro- protesting or uh, pronouncing his innocence before God. He's he's already defended himself with the people. They're they're giving up on him. They, his friends are saying, we can't talk to you anymore, which kind of raises the ire of Elihu. We'll see that in the next chapter. His, this other guy that was there and has long statements about this. But Job is there saying, I am an innocent person. And he lists so many different ways, 13, 14, 15, depending on how you, you categorize these or count these different sins, uh, that he says, I'm not guilty of that. And he's not just arguing it before the people. He's not asking for a judgment or, or witnesses for and against. He says, I have a clear conscience before God. I've not done this. I've not done this. I've not done this. And we can think, well, is Job getting a little bit self-righteous then? Is he kind of just getting full of himself? And, and he doesn't know the depths of, of wickedness that are in his heart. Well, he knows it. He knows it. And he knows where the battle is. It's not out there. It starts in me. It starts in my heart. It starts what I'm thinking, what I'm valuing, what I'm desiring. And he says, I fear God and I have turned away from evil. I continually turn away from evil. It's, it's a common refrain as we have thought about it, that act of our Lord, act of our friend Job, excuse me, he's not a Lord, well he was a sheik, but anyway, uh, act of Job back in chapter 1 verse 5, remember when his, his sons and daughters got together for a great festival and they did it regularly. He said the morning after he would say, "Let me come, guys, come together. We're going to offer sacrifices just in case, perhaps they have cursed God in their hearts. Let's offer a sacrifice to cover our transgression before God." Job was very concerned about pleasing God and living to please God, and even his his children, his adult children, most likely, because each one of them had their own home and and uh, were living that way. It seemed like anyhow, if you read read the text, and he is. Just very concerned that he would cover any kind of sin with a sacrifice. We'll see that issue of sacrifice come up again in the last chapter. You can read ahead if you want to. Not right now, please. But later, chapter 42, we see sacrifice returned again to cover blame and sin. Job is saying, you know, any sins that I, that I have in my life, I try to root them out from the source. Not just blaming on other people. It's, it's my responsibility and so we come to to chapter thirty one, and it come it flows right out of chapter thirty. And let me back up just a little bit here, showing the what Job is doing in these last uh, three chapters here, twenty nine, thirty, and thirty one. In chapter twenty nine, he reviewed or or even yearned for his prosperous past, all the and not just the prosperity of of you know gold and and all that kind of stuff. His relationship with God and how that gave life to everything. It's it showed that god was kind to him that god drew near to him even over his tent the blessing the lamp of the lord was upon him just wonderful beautiful things and so that job was blessed to be a blessing to others and that's what he rejoiced in. he was uh, regarded in the gate he was celebrated he was a just man he was he was one who who uh, sought for justice for the orphan the widow the oppressed a stranger even he was very active but then in chapter 30 whoa what has happened but now those who, who are beneath me, socially speaking, they're the ones who mock me. Those who used to rise up and call me blessed, even the aged, now they're, they're just mocking me. I'm a byword. you know. Oh, there goes Job. Oh, what a disgrace. What, how, how the mighty have fallen, even though that comes later in time. David says that. But uh, Job is lamenting his present disgrace. Prosperous past, yes, but there's nothing of that yet. Left for him. I mean, even his body is is wasted away. All of his stuff is taken away, the oxen and his servants and his own children taken away. And he just, he laments it. He says, what what has happened? What has happened? And he, he follows that with a disavowal, not just denying, but disavowing, saying, I have nothing to do with that. It's a solemn confession. It's a pronouncement that I have not been guilty of any of these kinds of sins that my friends are accusing me of because again their their solution is so simple suffering follows sin job you're suffering therefore you're a sinner you you need to deal with that sin so that you can be blessed again by god and god job god himself says job is not sinful he is a blameless and upright person in this this chapter we see somewhat of a formula in his in his statements it doesn't follow all the time but but if, you, if we ever see a full expression, we would see these four different components in his, his specific disavowals of various sins. And he's, he first lists the sin to be avoided. And he basically follows the pattern. If I have, fill in the blank, if I have ever done this, then there might be an appropriate punishment that he describes himself. Only a few times does he do that. But he says there's that sin to be avoided. And what would be the appropriate consequences for that sin? If I've done this, then this should happen to me. Then he gives a justification, sometimes, not always, but sometimes a justification for this would be this or that, you know, this horrible kind of thing. And then sometimes he adds that final disavowal because he said, if I've ever done that, uh, then this should happen because this is is true about it, but I've never done it. It's not true of me. I haven't been guilty of these sins. And so he goes on uh, several different ways, several different categories of denying uh, sinfulness or wrongdoing in his life. Again, depending on how you count them, how you organize them, there are 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. Uh, And they don't, by the way, they don't follow uh, like the Ten Commandments, which again, Job is probably 2000 BC. The Ten Commandments came 14, uh, 46, 45. And so he didn't know about these Ten Commandments. But the testimony of God that he had heard... Right, We're going to see that again in chapter 42. I've heard about you, but now I see you. He said, what has he heard? Well, he knows enough truth, enough righteousness, enough holiness to say, that's I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. And there's a certain measure of uh, code of ethics in the ancient Near East that he is following. And he gives it a good example of it. Now, we should think, I guess, a couple things about this. Again, he's not being a self-righteous person by declaring these things. He's saying he's agreeing with God. God himself assists. Just to Satan twice, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then the second time he says, and he still holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me to lift up my hand against him without cause. Well, is Job really innocent? Because obviously he is suffering so immensely, so publicly. I mean, his his, his downfall is well documented. If there were, you know, Instagram and all these, these things, I mean, the pictures of Job would be... Do you take pictures that way anymore with the camera? I was gonna, I, I'm old. Excuse me. And and uh, you, um, everybody knew about him. I mean, his friends from far away heard about the suffering of Job, and they came to to comfort him or do something with him. And everybody knew about it. Therefore, I mean, his reputation is broken. And it's not even so much. I mean, it is about his reputation, but it's more about how his reputation reflected the glory of God, because God is just. And for the the mentality of everybody is this, suffering follows sin. Job is suffering, therefore he's a sinner. But Job says, no, that's not true. And God is just. And yes, sometimes evil prospers, sometimes good people suffer. I don't understand it. I don't know why, but it happens. But I do know, Job says, and we've seen this throughout, that there is a judgment coming. Whether people realize it in this life or the next life after death, God is just and he will, he will act in, in what is in accordance with his good and perfect judgment. And so he is asking God to, yes, acquit him, prove his innocence for, for Job's sake, but also largely for God's sake. Because again, the accusation that we can't just skip over in, in Job chapter one, when Satan accused God, well, does Job um, serve God for nothing? You've blessed him with everything, all the all the stuff. You've put a hedge about him. And so no wonder, no wonder he he worships you because you've bribed him, essentially. And Job is arguing, no, God is worth worshiping, serving, loving, regardless of what he gives us or takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And so we see this uh, uh, undergirding, underpinning all of what he says. Now, I'm going to give you a comfort uh, of some regard. We're going to look at each of these, these uh, sins, but we're going to spend... More time on the first one, Uh, this first sin, this category of sin. So lest you think, good grief, he just spent 48 minutes on the first one. Now he just wants to do the rest one. Okay, we're not, it's okay. We're going to get through it, Lord willing, uh, and it'll be fine. Chapter 31, verse 1 through 4, Job says, I have cut a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above or the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not disaster to the unjust? And misfortune to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? This first one that he disavows, I've, I don't do this, I have made a firm commitment, is this sin of lust, a sin of a desire that is inappropriate. And he mentions it first, not because it's his, his primary or foundational offense, but because it evidences his commitment to purity of heart, not just. Activity outside that people can see. But what goes on in his heart, he says, I have made a firm commitment, a a, a promise to myself. And this idea of, of, yeah, it's here translated, cut a covenant. But he says, I've cut cut a covenant and made a a promise, made an agreement, made an arrangement with blessings and cursings and so forth with my eyes. Now, you can correct me if I'm missing something, but I did not find any other instance in scripture where somebody made a covenant with himself. Usually covenants are between two parties. David and Solomon. There's going David and Jonathan made a covenant together. God, of course, has made many covenants with people, but in terms of making a covenant with yourself, now please, if you find something, you let me know. But Job is saying, "I made a covenant with my eyes." What? What's this? What's this eye business? Now he he's testifying. I have a clear conscience before God. I have gone to the source, not just outside of of my life and all these temptations I see. No, my 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 filter my discipline is in myself. And he focuses on the eyes. Why the eyes, Job? What's this about? I've made a covenant with my eyes because eyes reflect and influence what is going on in the heart. We, we see this from the beginning of the book, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, the, the, the scene around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Wait, what'd she do? She saw She saw that the tree was good. And by the way, she knew where that tree was. The tree that's in the center of the garden, we know where it is because we've kind of staked it out. What do you do and even go near that thing? Stay away. Don't eat of that tree, God said to them. But she knew it and she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from the fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And sin entered the world through that disobedience. The deception of the woman, the disobedience of the man. But we come back and we see that was through the eye gate. That's how she uh, came into that sin. Another example you could look at. I won't develop it, but Numbers chapter fifteen, beginning at verse thirty-nine, about the sin of eyes. One of the one of the key ideas, both in terms of the nature and origin of sin, but also the glory of a confession is is Joshua chapter 7, when Achan or Achan, when he sinned and he, he describes this and he has just a, a tremendous confession because he, he goes right to the heart of the matter. This is Joshua chapter 7, verse 20. He says, truly, I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Oh, he doesn't cover his sin. He confesses it. I saw, okay, so I saw with my eyes, among the spoil, a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels of weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they're concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. A specific confession that that Achan presented in, not in defense, in, in sorrow. Of course, you can read the rest of the story, what happens with Achan and his family and even the, the stuff he'd taken. But he goes and says, I saw and I coveted and I took. That's just the progression of sin, a downward progression of sin. Uh, but it starts with what you saw. Uh, a classic example, of course, is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, where John says, 15 and following, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Well, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do that? Well, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And guess what? The world is passing away. And also it's lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Another example, 2 Peter 2 and verse 14, having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin. Our eyes, it's a, it's a big deal. So what we do with our eyes, where we allow our eyes to settle and... Uh, whether it's uh, another person or a, a tree, right? The fruit of the of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or uh, a mantle, you know, clothing uh, and silver and and gold and all. Yes, we see it, we covet it, we want it, we take it, and what do you do? You use it for your own pleasure. You don't do it to honor God. So what we do with our eyes is very important. This this uh, phrase translated. Uh, how could? How then could I gaze at a virgin? That that phrase or that verb gaze is kind of an interesting term. And there are six different terms, seven if you include this one, seven, there we go. Just had to update my refresh, right? Uh, seven different words in Hebrew to talk about a gaze or a look or an analysis or uh, uh, regarding looking upon, seven different ways that, that this could be said. Now, because it's in close relationship, Job was talking about his eyes, we can, we can say, okay, he's talking about the eyes and, and having a long or prolonged gaze upon uh, this, this um, uh, virgin, it says there. But again, these other, other words more reflect the idea of, of what's going on with the eyes, a long look, um, and we see something that's, that's even not prohibited, I guess, or, or condemned. Remember Eliezer, uh, the servant of Abraham, was commissioned by Abraham to go back to his homeland and, and get a wife for his son Isaac. Well, Eliezer went and did these things. Genesis 24, verse 21, uses a different word than the word we have here to gaze. It says, Eliezer was gazing at her, that is Rebekah, in silence to know whether Yahweh had made his journey successful or not. Is this the person? God? Seems like she is, but but I, I need to know and he's gazing at her a, a long a settled uh, look even analyzing her to some degree seeing is 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 this the one or should we look for somebody else kind of a thing so there's that different word it's only the it's the only place where that word is used in genesis 22421 another more popular term is to gaze or to regard to look upon in that way and job is used it actually appears twice in job and job says will you never turn your gaze away from me or not let me alone along and Uh, Let me alone until I swallow my spit. I mean, good grief. Give me a break. Take your gaze away from me. Stop looking at me so hard. And I just need time to to refresh myself. And uh, again, in Job 14 and verse 6, he talks about gazing. And... uh, um, you can see that uh, just to look upon, to look upon is another way that another term rather used a lot, 70 times in the in the biblical text and talking about uh, gazing after Moses when he was entering the tent back in Exodus 33 and verse eight and how Yahweh gazed upon the earth. So a, a settled look. Uh, Another way to look at it is a lingering look, something that is. Wait a minute, it's not appropriate. What's going on? But and Job uses again. Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation. He's looking. He's looking out and seeing this. It's horrible. He's lingering in this. He's he's listening to their their scorn and their mocking, and his eyes are just just watching them. So there's that idea. Uh, Two more is to notice, to gaze at, to examine critically. This is. uh, like in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 9, my beloved gazes through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. Gazing and peering. Those are two different words, but this one is, is a, a gazing or examining critically. Where is my beloved? How, how can I find her? And uh, One place where th- this alternate word and the word we have in our text is used is Isaiah 14, and verse 6. Those who see you will gaze at you. They'll carefully consider you. Gaze is that idea. They'll look at you, but then that careful consideration is our word translated gaze in Job 31.1, that careful consideration. So we get to, well, the other one, to gaze, I mentioned Song of Solomon 2 and verse 9, but this one here that we see, gaze, gaze, I cut a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin, is used variously to look carefully, and that is, remember when, Solomon is put to the test. He had these two women who came to him in the morning and says, you know, my son died, but this son is alive. And there was a contest or a conflict. Whose son is he? Because both claim him and and all that. And Job, excuse me, Solomon had a good uh, solution to it, of course. But the one, the real mother said, when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I'd born. That phrase, looked at him carefully, is our word here, gaze in job thirty one one to look carefully also used in psalm thirty seven verse ten looking carefully analyzing also has the idea of perceiving or understanding or seeking to understand uh, we see it in job twenty six verse fourteen behold these are the fringes of his ways, and how only with a whisper of a word do we hear him, but his mighty thunder who can understand who can perceive who can gaze upon there's different because we're not talking about you know because we don 't see thunder, we, we hear it, right, but his mighty thunder who can who can understand, who can interpret it who can who can appreciate what 's going on there? Uh, this used positively here, I shall perceive your testimonies, I shall understand psalm one hundred and nineteen verse ninety five uh, different, different other ways to describe understanding, perceiving, but the other the other way that this is used is uh, a careful consideration, like we saw back in first Kings chapter three. Job 11 verse 11 says, He knows worthless men and he sees wickedness, so will he not carefully consider it? Will he not look into it? Will he not get to the heart of the matter and and uh, do something about it? It's used several times in Job. Actually, I carefully consider is how it's usually translated. Uh, Job uses it. Elihu uses it. God himself uses it. Have you carefully considered the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Job 38, 18 and other places. So in other words, it, it's not just a look or a long look. This gazing idea, it is a look with a desire to understand, to perceive, to uh, critically evaluate. Uh, it's just not just, hey, a, a, a glance. It is something that is, is seeking, to, seeking more than what is appropriate, especially in this context. He says, how, I, how could, could I gaze or, or seek to perceive or, or understand or even uh, take this, this woman? How should I ever do that? Now, obviously, you've been thinking, why hasn't he mentioned this text already? Well, it's because I was saving it for now. Thank you so much. Second Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11 ought to fill you with dread and dismay and think, oh, David, what are you doing? David, David. When it was evening, David came, or uh, came, when the evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. There is that dreadful procession I was going to say progression, but it's not going positive. It's a degression. It is a horrible situation where David, he was there, and you think, what are you doing lying in your bed at evening? What, you should be doing work. And you can read verse 1, what was going on. But he, he says, I'm getting up, walking around, and he saw. Wait a minute, Joe, or excuse me, David, what are you doing just looking around? Well, it's his, it's his kingdom, it's his roof. He can look down. And he saw, careful with your eyes, David, careful with your eyes. He wasn't careful. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. It wasn't her fault for being beautiful. David's fault for inquiring. He sought to perceive. He sought to understand. He sought to critically examine. Who is this person down there? Because obviously she's beautiful. And you think, David, don't you have enough wives already? What, what are you doing messing with? What are you even doing, David? What are you thinking about? Did David have any kind of accountability in his life? Who knows what he was going on. He did afterward. He did have the answerability portion of accountability that, you know, when Nathan the prophet came in the next chapter. But at this point, nobody's challenging him. They're not saying, uh, David, that's somebody else's wife. I mean, they said that. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men, by the way. Oh, we'll go get her no David how far be it from you to do this thing like Joab even said when the census was taken at the end of Second Samuel stop don't do that nobody challenged him nobody corrected him and he sent messengers took her and they, he lay with her I mean, he acted on just gave full expression to the, to the what was going on in his eyes what was going on the covetousness in his heart wanting to take somebody somebody else's wife for his own pleasure wicked 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 what was going on there and judgment came upon David, his son, his family, just horrible. And yet even in that course of it, we see God's redemption in terms of Bathsheba and the son Solomon was born and the son Solomon who became the, the great grandfather of Jesus and Bathsheba being in our Lord's lineage, you know, lineage of, of family and God is able to redeem. But why put the Lord, our God, to the test and why say, oh, God can make good out of this. I'm going to make a mess and God will clean it up Fine. Why make the mess in the first place? David, what are you doing about this? You should guard your eyes. What are you doing even at home at this time? You should be out with your your army fighting. That was verse one of, of that chapter you can read. The sin that David participated in started with what he saw with his eyes. That's why Job says, I've made a covenant. You know, I'm cutting it off at the source there, but also putting a guard on my heart because this is so dangerous to me. You've heard the saying, perhaps, in order to avoid sexual sin, you have to be more godly than David, wiser than Solomon, and stronger than Samson. Which, okay, how many of us, if we line each other, we're not going to do that, but we want to. We want to be godly. And Job is saying, look... The things that you can't know about my life. You can't see me. You can't see that I'm lusting after some, some uh, young woman. You can't see that, but I know my conscience is clear before God. And I have made a covenant. I have made a solemn promise to myself, a, an arrangement. I, I have just taken these things, made a solemn profession to avoid this sin. Now, lest we think in our kind of uh, legalistic or, or casuistic that's, I think that's the proper term, uh, ways, looking for exceptions to this rule. Notice it says, I uh, do not gaze at a virgin. A virgin is an unmarried woman who's not been sexually that intimate with a man. And so Job is saying, well, he hasn't been gazing after for the, the virgin, but it must be okay to gaze after a married woman, right? Because obviously that's okay. Because he said, I, I didn't marry or didn't uh, lust after a, uh, a married woman. Well, it's still wrong to do that. Remember how uh, the Lord in his Ten Commandments said, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Don't go after that. And Job is going to be more specific later in chapter 31 about adultery, acting on the the sin of lust. But he comes right to the the root of it now and says, I've... I put a monitor on my eyes, I guard my eyes and I guard my heart so I don't have any kind of gazing, lingering looks, any kind of desire to find out more about this, this situation. You know, What's her name? Where's she from? Hey, bring her over here. No, he doesn't do that. He is so careful to protect his integrity before God. Why is that important? Because he's a blameless man, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. He maintains his integrity. God endorsed him in that. Chapter 2, verse 8 or 9, somewhere in there. And he has maintained his integrity at the very end. God never questions it. It's never been a question. God was pleased with Job in his integrity. And it's not its not self-righteous to defend yourself in this regard, to disavow sin and say, I don't have anything to do with that over there. That's not part of my life. That's not part of my uh, living to please God right now. Other things I'm working on, but that's not it. And so he he's very careful, again, to protect, Profess to to proclaim his innocence before God ultimately, and for other people, other people are listening, sort of, but they're not not going to do anything about it. God is the one who, with whom, uh, uh, Job is appealing and says, "I want to stand before God and, and let him present his case against me and and uh, let him acquit me if he would." In fact, that's kind of the the thing here, with with Job, with all these different expressions of of disavowing this sin and that sin and that sin, is it, it really? forces and that's kind of an um, improper term to use in this regard because uh, he's talking to God but he's he's forcing God you understand the the exception or the, the difficulty of doing that and Job understands that too but he is asking God either condemn me publicly just you know put my sin on display for everybody not through suffering because that has nothing to do with it but if I'm a sinner you God you have to bring down these judgments upon me but if I am innocent you must acquit me Publicly acquit, being uh, proclaimed the innocence of you, must declare me not guilty. One way or the other, God, this has come to to not quite quite to blows. But he is, Job is demanding God to come down and speak to him. Now, a few other concepts uh, before we move on to the next uh, sin, and that is: is it wrong to be a beautiful woman? And is it is it wrong to be uh, to have femininity? Is it, is it wrong to be beautiful in that regard? And you know we see several different, because Job is saying I don't look upon any kind of a virgin in that regard. I don't I don't let their beauty charm me, and it's, it's not an accusation against them that somehow they're they're tempting me to do evil. No, Job is saying this is for myself. I have cut a covenant with myself, and I'm not going to do that. But for the lady's perspective, is it wrong to be beautiful? Do you know the? patriarchs abraham isaac and jacob each of their wives are described as beautiful oh sarah beautiful genesis 12 and verse 1 rebecca beautiful not just beautiful very beautiful in appearance uh, a virgin and no man had known her and she went down to the spring she was she was beautiful and fit and strong and she kept care of the te- kept care or took care of the flocks and so forth so rebecca is beautiful uh, Le- leah it says genesis 29 verse 17 jacob's first wife leah her eyes were weak which some people think she had bad vision. No, the idea is that she's not a good thing to look at. And you think, well, that's kind of rude. But Rachel was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. So just the whole the whole works about Rachel, but then her sister Leah, not so much. But God blessed Leah. Wonderful, wonderful blessings to Leah. By the way, I don't recommend marrying more than one woman. Just don't do it. And they will testify to David did it, Solomon did it to the extreme, but Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, wrong, bad, bad things. Isaac didn't do it, but Abraham, anyway, mess, don't do it. This is interesting. You remember when Joseph was sold into slavery, into Egypt, and he's down in Egypt, and he's in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife, you remember all that nastiness going on there, when she... And it's translated here this is genesis thirty nine seven when Potiphar's wife set her eyes on joseph it's a little bit different phrase than we see here in Gen- in the job thirty one one she lifted her eyes on job doesn't mean he's taller and whatever but but she she's looking at that guy and she said to, to Joseph lie with me Her sin started with her eyes because she saw he's he's quite a guy and she wanted to to violate her marriage vows and violate Joseph in this way and that didn't happen Joseph ran away from that situation but we, we see that, that she valued him, she desired him in his beauty we see other people described as beautiful, Abigail, uh, the wife of David um, Bathsheba of course very beautiful, Tamar daughter of David is beautiful, Tamar daughter of Absalom named after his sister perhaps, very beautiful Abishag, First Kings 1 beautiful um, Queen Vashti was beautiful in appearance, uh, Esther. Oh, just top notch, and so and even we're going to see it in Job forty two in verse fifteen, when God restores the fortune of Job, he had seven sons and three daughters, and it says, verse forty two, verse chapter forty two, fifteen. Now in all the land, no women were found so beautiful as Job's daughter, daughters. So it's not wrong to be beautiful; it's celebrated in Scripture, but there is an improper use of beauty. We see this in Scripture. Proverbs 11, verse 22, as a ring of gold and a swine snout, so is a beautiful woman who turns away from discretion. You'd think that a beautiful, person, beautiful woman would be discreet, would be, you know, use her beauty appropriately, not as a, as a snare, as a tool to capture people's attention, but as, a, as a, a useful thing to advance her own reputation and for the advancement of others that, that see her. Proverbs 31.30 talks about charm being deceitful and beauty being vain. Deceitful, charm, you know, put your, it is inter- interesting, yes, when, when the scriptures talk about a prostitute or a woman, a harlot, that kind of thing, it, it mentions her appearance, but usually it focuses on or develops the words that she uses. And here, the, the, the writer is saying charm or the words are deceitful. And go back to Proverbs 7 if you want to look at what's what's this deceit going on. Proverbs 7. Charm is deceitful and what she has, it is vain, it's empty, it, it's, it's going to, to pass away. But a woman who fears Yahweh, she should be praised and she uses her beauty. It he doesn't say she's ugly. Only the ugly people fear God. No, that's not what he's saying. But she's going to be praised because of her fear of God. To have a reputation as a God-fearing woman is what we want. How can women use their... Uh, adornment, their cosmetology. Cosmetology comes from the Greek term to put things in order. And how can a woman express her femininity with confidence, not to be afraid or ashamed of it, and, uh, not, and, and with joy and saying, I am a woman made in God's image. I am a one who is celebrating this, but I'm using my beauty not as a trap, not as a lure toward other people or the men, but to adorn myself properly. Second, or excuse me, First Timothy chapter 2, Verse 9, Paul says, I want women to adorn themselves, how? With proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness. Don't spend so much more time on your physical appearance than you do with your godliness. What's going on in your heart? It's not to say that we're going to work on our godliness more than we look. We're not going to comb my hair today because I'm a godly person. Okay, take care of yourself. Put things in order. But remember, these things are far less down the line. It's kind of like what you'd read earlier or a little bit later in 1 Timothy 4. Um, physical discipline or bodily exercise or how we want to work it out is profitable for a little thing. It's, it's good. Okay, it's good to walk. It's good to move. Good to lift weights and whatever. But let me tell you, godliness is useful for everything. Make sure you put things in proper order. 1 Peter 3, verse 30, verses 3 through 6, talks about, again, that adornment not merely external, and that word merely is added in there because you can just as well say your adornment must not be external. Don't be so fixated upon outside stuff, braiding the hair, gold, jewelry, all that stuff, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And it talks about Sarah going on there. Again, beauty is something to... Enjoy and to be a blessing for yourself and for other people, but always reflecting the glory of God, always reflecting a godly character. We don't want to follow after that. That again, the Proverbs thirty-one thirty, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. No, don't don't do that. But do look beautiful. We see beauty celebrated, especially in that marriage situation, in Revelation twenty-one and verse two. The holy city, New Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven. Uh, Uh, from god made ready as a bride adorned made beautiful i mean things put together for her husband that holy city so beauty is something that we can appreciate the problem that job had was not with beautiful people out there it's with his own heart he has put a guard on his own heart and he's so the question is well are women responsible for a man's temptation then Uh, is it is it the woman's fault well that's what Adam said. The woman and not just not just Eve is the problem. The woman you gave me God somehow if there was a refund policy a return policy I would have given her back but you gave her to me and so it's really your fault. Sorry. No, God will not allow that to stand. Adam was responsible. He was just wickedly disobedient. The woman is not responsible for for Adam's temptation. The woman is not responsible or somehow uh, the the agent or the provocateur of of the man's temptation. When we talk about accountability, we talk about it a lot in our world. you are going to hold you accountable. What does that mean? What does it mean? There are three aspects to it, I believe, as I've studied this for a variety of uh, situations. First one, First one is self-mastery. That's what we see in Job, Job 31.1. I have cut a covenant with my eyes. I've done this. This is a serious commitment. I desire godliness. I desire the proper use of my faculties, my whole body, beginning with my heart and everything else about me. I use it for God's glory. I use it to the, to the fear of God, and I want to please God with everything about me. So self-mastery begins the accountable lifestyle. But then there's the idea of transparency. We don't start with transparency. Transparency just means, hey, other, other people can see what's going on in my life. I've, I've either been passively monitored by other people, people are watching me, or I have willingly chosen to expose certain aspects of my life to to, uh, to various people for the purpose of accountability, for the purpose of maturity and godliness and so forth. We don't start with transparency, and we just need more transparency. Well, because, wait a minute transparency is useless if it doesn't start with self-mastery. If we just start exposing and confessing all of our sin, wait a minute, what does that benefit anybody? You've got to forsake, confess that sin first before you start saying, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. This is my my life. This is what's going on in my heart. This is what's going on in my words and my actions. This is how I'm spending my time. Transparency is the second aspect of accountability, but we've got to start with that self-mastery or self-discipline. Third aspect of accountability is answerability, being able to uh, um, give an answer, to stand under scrutiny, people are going to come, hey, I see this about your life, or I see this going on in your, in your situation, I heard that you say this, or, or whatever, tell me about it, help me understand what's going on in your heart, not just external things, but what is going on. And answerability, self-mastery, transparency, answerability, so key to uh, accountability And so we go back to the question, are women responsible for men's temptation? No, absolutely not. Do they contribute to it? Yes. And so there is a danger to that. Proverbs 6, 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. You know, all the batting of the eyes and so forth. But the question is, or the the conviction is, hey, you, you man, you do not desire her beauty. You look at it, enjoy the beauty, but don't gaze upon it. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to find more about this person. Just enjoy it and move on. Don't let her capture you with her eyelids. And you think, well, isn't that, Blaming her? Well, in that regard, it's the harlot that he's talking about there, probably six. But he says, don't do that, but it comes back to you. Don't desire, don't let her capture you. Don't be deceived, don't be hoodwinked, don't be taken in like Adam, or like Eve was back in Genesis three. Like Achan was in Joshua seven. I saw it, I coveted it, I took it, and it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Jesus, when he said, Matthew 5. You've said, Why hasn't he talked about Matthew 5 yet? You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see the the connection. It's not just the act of adultery, it is the, the heart attitude of lust to look upon somebody with a desire to have her, coveting your neighbor's wife, as the Ten Commandments prohibit. And he says, Don't do that. You've heard, you, you, you said, Oh, I haven't committed adultery because we haven't slept together. No, let me tell you, If you look with lust, a desire for that, then that is wrong. And he goes on to say, this is what you should do about it. Not execute the woman. No. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So he starts with the eye, because that's where the the beauty is is ascertained or, or seen for the first time. And then if your right hand, so if you act upon the lust that is your heart, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. Much can be said about that. And, and Job is going to say that here just briefly in terms of the punishment that is due him. I need you to write this down. 1 Thessalonians 4, first eight verses, talk about uh, abstaining from sexual immorality, being God's will for each one of us. And also James 1, uh, 13 to 18, where James is talking about temptation. It's not from God, it's from your own lusts. And when your lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't you be deceived about that. Remember what John said, everything that's in the world is perishing, passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Just a few examples. I know I said I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. But one last thing, and that is how can, I mean, if this is the way, I mean, it's kind of reminds of Matthew 19, if this is the way it is and we shouldn't even get married at all, and that was in the context of divorce, but man, we should, we should just separate, have the guys over here and the girls over here and just never the twain shall meet. Well, that's not how we ought to live in our lives. One of the presiding Principles in relating of men and women, whether you're married or not, how do we relate to one another in different ages and stages of life, and how do we just do that? Well, first Timothy five, first first couple of verses, are, are helpful in that regard. It says, "Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather plead with him as a father. to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. How should, specifically, how should men and women relate, especially younger men, younger women, well, as sisters. In and not in a, no, my sister, right? No, as a, as a sister in all purity, in all cleanness, moral cleanness, without any kind of defect, without any kind of compromise or question or questionable activity or, or the, the heart attitude. No, loving, kind, sibling relationship. We, we regard one another. We view each other as individuals made in God's image and not as objects or commodities to be traded or bought and sold like baseball cards or something. No, we, we regard that as a person, that's, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's uh, uh, sister, or it's my sister. I'm going to treat her that way with all purity. I'm going to come back to my own self and have the desire for what is right before God. We often in our house quote Thomas Jefferson, and in his first, first inaugural address, he has this kind of a phrase. He said, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. You think, what's he talking about there? One thing here, just be careful in your relationships with other people in other words, say it is free and open trade with all, entangling alliances with none. Just be careful how how close you get to somebody. In our sisterly, brotherly relationships, we want to limit the exclusive attention. I mean, other, you know, a marriage relationship, fine, but outside of that, be careful how much attention you give to to one person, and don't make a claim on that person where there is no claim. That's not my boyfriend, not my girlfriend. This is a friend. That's a person we relate, we do stuff. <clears throat> there is no exclusivity, no possessive uh, nature in that regard. And also one final thing, avoid compromising situations. That is time of day, location, means of communication, frame of mind that we can think about. And that goes when we're talking with other people directly or coming back into the online world where so much of this happens, where a lot of this coveting, this gazing, this seeking to understand, and, and you can search all manner of things. If if that is a a fault of yours, if that is a transgression of yours, then what are you going to do about it? You're just going to say, well, God forgives. Yes, he does. But he demands holiness from you. He demands, by the way, perfection. Be perfect as (laughs) your heavenly father is perfect. So don't just say, well, it'll be fine. It'll all work out. God will forgive. There is a point when God says, enough. You're, You're chasing after sin. Saul, King Saul, you're chasing after sin. It's going to be wicked bad, judgment is coming. Be very careful. Again, Job has said, I have a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? Be careful what you let in your eyes. Be careful what you let reside and settle down in your heart because it will destroy you. I said we're going to do the whole chapter. I'm going to relent. Okay, thank you so much. But we need to look at these next few verses here. What is the portion of God from above or the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? God is storing up sin. Do you remember how he said... It's Psalm 130. Lord, uh, Adonai, Lord, if you were to keep a record, count the number of sins we've done. Oh Lord, Yahweh, who can stand? But maybe I alternate it. I think it's anyway. He uses two different terms, Adonai and Yahweh, in that verse. If God were keeping a record, if He was keeping track of our sins, who in the world could stand? Who could be blameless before God? Nobody. If God does, But the thing is, it's not an if. God does keep a record. God does write down our transgressions. He does keep record of our sins and our, our wickedness against him. But then the next verse says, there is forgiveness with you. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Not a forgiveness as, oh, God, you know, we're chums. We, we're going to the bar together tonight because he's for, a forgiving God. No, he forgives so that we would fear him, that we would honor him, that we would obey him, that we would tremble. At His holiness, on display. But also, we want to see it on display in our own lives. We want to make Him proud, to glorify Him, to to exalt Him in all of the things we do, because He does keep a portion. We see here back in verse two. What is the portion of God? What is the reserved little piece? What is the reward? Even they were inheritance from the Almighty, of the Almighty from on high. What does the evil doer get? Is it not disaster? to the unjust and misfortune to those who work iniquity now lest we think oh so he's saying that sin follows or excuse me suffering follows sins he's cuz judgment follows. well generally it does but not always in this world right the wages of sin is death whether the person dies for their sin or suffers for their sin in this life well that's forget about it that's that's, temper, that's small beans but to suffer eternally for our sin is not disaster Is it not disaster what God is storing up for the unrighteous? Disaster to the unjust and misfortune to those who work iniquity. And lest you think, and this was the accusation against Job. Job, you're saying that God is so high that he can't even see and and look down what's happening on earth, and he doesn't take notice of evil doing and right doing, and he doesn't act. Job says, no. Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? Wow. There's that Going back to that accountability thing we should be mastering disciplining ourselves we should be transparent with other people we should be answering questions and and, uh, evaluation or examination but we also ought to regard this is not a voluntary thing before God God I have chosen to not be transparent with you thank you so much I'm not going to give an answer to you for whatever I do in my life this is my life leave me alone do you know anybody like that are you like that are you, do you know somebody? I mean, th- this is a serious problem that we have in our lives because our accountability to God is not a voluntary thing. Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? He knows, even, not just external stuff that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, that, that Job rehearses, but inside, in the heart, he knows what's going on in my eyes, he knows what's going on in my heart, and does he not see these things, and does he not Number, count, record even all my steps. He knows these things. And by the way, lest you think, well, I'll never have to answer my, for my stuff. Everything. Ecclesiastes 12. God will bring every act of judgment to see whether it is good or worthless, evil, wicked, filthy. Uh, and God is Just. He's not deceived. He's not. We can charm. We we can try to charm. Oh God, you, you're so kind and so gentle. You so you forgave David all those things. He'll be fine with me, right? Do not presume upon God's grace. I mean, sinners, whatever, but especially for Christians. How shall we who died to sin continue in it? Oh God is so gracious. He'll be fine. You should not be living that way. It's not a matter of could. You should not. You should not be living those way. You should follow Job's example. What are you doing with your eyes? What are you doing with the coveting, the desires of your heart? What are you doing with the way you're thinking about other people and relating to them? You be careful because God does bring every act to judgment to see whether it is good or evil. How in the world can anybody stand? There's forgiveness with you. How do you get forgiveness? Now, from our perspective, run to Jesus. You cling to him. You say, Jesus, I am a great sinner, but you are a great savior. You died in my place. You never sinned. You never did anything to displease God. You always did what was pleasing to your father. Therefore, you could die a death that wasn't, you didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve to die for your sins because you didn't sin. But you could die in my place and your death was my death. In, in your death, I died and, and my death counted, or your death, excuse me, counted as my death for the wages of sin. And I can enter into your resurrection life, the righteousness that can be imputed to me or, or granted to me, reckoned to me by grace through faith. That's what I cling to. I don't have any other hope. You are my only hope for salvation. I am a great sinner, but you, Jesus, are a great savior. We recognize that God does take a record of wrong, and yet he does cancel it out. He blots it out. He removes the the sin from us as far as the east is from the west and he does that through the Lord Jesus Christ look to Christ run to him find your salvation in him because there is no other way Run to Christ. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your uh, uh, provision of salvation in Christ. We're thankful for the forgiveness that we have in him and we pray that we would not squander that. We would not take advantage of that. Not somehow uh, say, oh, you're a forgiving God, so let me see what else you can forgive me for. No. Please help us to tread lightly in these things. This is death. We're playing with death. We're playing with things that will destroy us and and others about him. It is a violation of other people's uh, image of God-ness, this idea of lust and coveting. And we pray that you would protect us from these things. Help us to be very vigilant. Help us as relate to one another, not as in a, in a callous way or in an in a objectifying way or, or anything that's wicked like that, but treating people as people, as individuals made in your image, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Please help us to be very careful to honor you in this regard as Job was. And it's not just the other person's fault. It comes, it starts with ourselves. Please help us to walk In a manner worthy of our calling, please help us to glorify you in all things and praise you. Thank you again for each one who's here. Please save, please sanctify for your good pleasure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.